Well, what is it that you experience in life that is important to you now, but that you long for to be better? Uh, communication without conflict, ageing without decay, government without scandal, or maybe it's work without frustration, parenting without heartache, or a world without death. Whoever we are, and regardless of how much we've thought about it, we've all experienced things in life that we know are important, that we value as precious, but that we long for to be better. It's part of our experience of being human, isn't it? Uh, even when you can't explain it, how many times have you longed for better? Not because you're ungrateful or greedy, greedy necessarily, but you can envisage a better way a better story. Now it's easy to think the problem is with everyone else or as I've thought more than once in my life, uh, if everyone was just more like me, everything would be okay. But how to arrive at what we long for? How to overcome the problem that is out there and just as profound how to remedy the problem that when I'm honest myself with myself, is actually in here as well. Today, as we come to the end of our series in 2 Samuel, I can tell you with confidence, it has been done for us. We might not see it, yet see it in 4K, HD, full colour, but already it is before us. For many of us, we depend on it already each day. For others of us, we're looking on or looking into it, seeking to understand it, wondering if it is too good to be true. But what we long for and the transformation we need have already begun, have already been won in the Lord Jesus. And as we've read to Samuel together, we've seen both the shape of the king we need and the shape of the kingdom he brings. And we've looked, haven't we, as into a mirror to see ourselves in our sin as we truly are, but also to see the forgiveness which Jesus has accomplished. What in these pages of 2 Samuel we see in part in Jesus' coming, we see in all its fullness. And while we still experience the brokenness of the, this world and the consequences of our collective sin, the difference he's made in us now means the great renewal we look forward to is so much more our identity now than the life without God we, been, we have been saved from. Let me show you what I mean and how this all works out as we come to the final chapters of 2 Samuel. Do you remember how the chapters of 2 Samuel fit together? Uh, in chapters 1 to 10, God revealed the king we need in David. Uh, but in chapters 11 to 20, we saw how David was not that king, but like us, was corrupted by sin. Then the final chapters draw together both those themes and when we get there, as we have today, these episodes aren't grouped chronologically or sequentially like events in the rest of the book or much of the book, but by their theme, with each repeating itself on either side as you move out from the centre of these chapters. Revealing on the furthest out the antidote to sin is atonement, 
revealing on the next one in the strength of God's kingdom that can overcome, and in the centre, our joy in knowing the Lord and living for his kingdom. We're going to see the first, uh, the outside one, by looking at chapter 24 first, and it is paralleled in chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, but I'll leave that for you to look at. And yet, 2 Samuel 24, it's an intriguing chapter in so many ways because while it's the last chapter of the book, I don't think if we'd been given the choice, we would have made it the last chapter of the book. It's about David taking a census and counting up his military forces, but actually the census is only a catalyst for what's really taking place. What we're really seeing through David is the antidote to sin is atonement. I guess I better deal with verse 1 first in case you won't be able to concentrate on anything else if I don't. So verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he inclined David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. That's a verse that raises eyebrows. Uh, the bit where God incited David, I mean, it, it seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Uh, but is it out of step with the rest of the Bible? The Lord's anger burned against Israel and others who disobeyed him again and again. Uh, it's terrible, but real. And it reveals, doesn't it, that God is a holy God and that he judges the hearts of all people and that sin the desire to lead ourselves and not be led by him pervades all humanity and turns our hearts against him. Even God's people Israel, even God's king, David. But what we see here is God ruling David's choices to the point where it is according to his decision that David sins. And we wonder, how can a holy God do that? And the answer is, it's hard to say, or at least it's hard to get our minds around, and yet it is very much reality revealed to us here in the pages of Scripture. As we find it here, as we find it elsewhere, even as he was sovereign, sovereign over the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, these two things hold together at the same time. The Lord is in control, Yet both David and Judas were responsible for their actions. The Lord is in control and we are responsible for our actions. Now we're not told exactly what it was about the census that made it a sin, just that David himself realised it was. Verse 10, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord I have sinned greatly in what I have done now Lord I beg you take away the guilt of your servant I have done a very foolish thing I don't think that it's taking a census in and of itself that's a sin maybe David was beginning to think of the army as his army rather than the Lord's or maybe he was thinking his battles would be won on account of his number that numbers rather than the Lord he served. But we're not told, only that there are consequences for his sin for David and the nation. And so an angel of death, striking down the people, as in the days of the exodus from Egypt, comes, sent by the Lord, 
But what's striking is that those who were there on these days, they did not experience the full judgment of the Lord, neither Israel nor David. As we read in verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. This is where we see this isn't all about the census at all. It's about God's mercy to, toward our sin and how the Lord through his prophet offers a way to turn aside the Lord's anger. Verse 18, on that day Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David's to build an altar, to offer sacrifices with the sacrifice dying in the place of the people and in the place of David. The point is, both here and you'll see similar in chapter 21, we need God to deal with our judgment for sin as we have no way of dealing with it ourselves. We need God's antidote to the consequences of sin. We need God's holy anger turned away from us. We need atonement, as the Bible calls it. The Lord's anger would destroy us in judgment unless it can be turned away, deflected, satisfied. And wonderfully in Jesus, that is our experience when we trust in him. The sacrifices of David here didn't ultimately satisfy God's anger, but what and who they pointed to did. The threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, would become the site of the temple where the sacrifices of atonement would be made for the nation. But more than that, the day would come when the final sacrifice would be made on the outskirts of that same city, Jerusalem, when the Lord Jesus would die on a Roman cross so that the anger of God against our sin would be turned away from us. If you want to know, know what the world needs what you and I need more than anything else. And wonderfully, many of us already rely on it. We need the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus in our place. In him we see God's anger for our sin turned in on himself, where God knows we can't make atonement for ourselves, but may experience forgiveness and a new relationship. In fact, that's what atonement means, at one as it were, through his extraordinary and merciful intervention. Now, in these last chapters too, and this is the next set of parallels within those sort of recurring parallels, we see the strength of God's kingdom can overcome. 
In verse, uh, chapter 21, from verse 15 to 22, David's kingdom is pictured again overcoming God's enemies. Like I said before, this isn't sequential in time, but a moment in time from the days of David's reign. Now, I don't actually plan to spend long here, but what we see is the depth and breadth of the strength of God's kingdom. Pictured here, David and his fighting men against the descendants of Rapha among the Philistines, like Goliath before them, but prevailing against such a great enemy. The same can be said in the parallel passage in chapter 23 from verse 8 to 39. And it points, both of them point, not to human strength, but the Lord who brings the victory. In fact, that's spoken of twice, specifically in chapter 3. The Lord's king and the Lord's kingdom overcomes all the Lord's enemies in the strength of our Lord. It's no surprise then to find David's descendant, Jesus, the Christ, the anointed, God's king, described as winning a great victory, defeating our greatest enemies. Where in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus is described in the sort of language of a Roman general holding a triumphal parade, a victory parade, with his enemies as captives on show for all to see. But in Jesus' case, it's the enemies of sin and judgment and death. As we read, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And do you know what it means? It means that we share in his victory too when we trust in and walk in the Lord Jesus. That our enemies of sin and judgment and death have been defeated too. Which brings me to the central theme, uh, there in the centre of these last chapters, the one in the middle of the other parallels, drawing our attention to it by the way in which it's placed in the centre. It's the joy of knowing the Lord and living in his kingdom. We read the second half of chapter 22, didn't we? But the whole chapter, uh, which was repeated again in our Bibles in Psalm 18, it's a wonderful song. It's a climax on which to end our time in 2 Samuel. As David says in verse 1, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And while we can't go into depth uh, at this point, you know, think of this more as as a guided tour to help you look at it in more detail yourself later on. But it begins with this chorus from verse 2. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn or strength of my salvation. The Lord is my rock. He stands between me and my enemies and rescues me. 
And the first half of the psalm, after all, a psalm just means song, the first half of the song reflects the events of the great exodus, that great experience of rescue that was the great memory, the shared memory of the power and mercy of God for all Israel. And David, as the king of Israel, compares his experiences, his own dangers and the threats to his own life as being overcome by the one who won that great victory at the exodus. And as he does this, he reveals, doesn't he, his joy. His joy not just at being rescued, but in knowing the Lord who treats him marvellously in this way. And as he does, his words point us to the Lord Jesus and to a second exodus upon the cross. And now the great saving event on which we trust. Not that we simply take David's words as our own words, David's deliverance as our own. He was God's anointed, God's king, unique in God's plans. But as we are united to his descendant, the Lord Jesus, the one promised in 2 Samuel 7 and so much of the heart of this book, who would rule on David's throne forever, Don't we know the atonement he won for us? The strength he has exercised on our behalf. The way in which he has shielded us from what we deserve. So we could experience with him what we could never have earned. Our confidence lies in the kingdom that David's foreshadowed, in the king he prefigured, where the same Lord, the Lord Jesus, is our rock. Or as David identified in chapter 24, he is our shepherd. Or as David requested when he said, let your hand fall on me and my family, he is the descendant on whom the hand of the Lord fell for us and so we are so privileged privileged to see the life of David to the Lord's hand at work in him to see the the Lord's promise made to him but also to remember the warning that David was not enough that for the high point that he is this was in the Lord's plans but it fades into insignificance unless we listen to it and see his glory. And so we are here today trusting the promises of God as David did, but knowing how reliable the Lord Jesus is to keep them. And so we pray, your kingdom come, not because it hasn't already the Lord Jesus, the King has come and his rule has begun, but as all the promises of God are promises now to us through him. So we wait for the day when we will all see, when all will see and we with them the perfect and complete kingdom in all its glory. With our sin, a distant memory, in a world of other person-centeredness, complete in every way as it is intended to be. 
We long now for that day when we will see the king and tell each other of his greatness for the rest of our days. It's not so very far off as even now we may tell each other and others already. That, that is our joy, brothers and sisters. Praise God for that. I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we wonder at your great plans, at the extraordinary love that you demonstrate to us, the control over events, even over our sin. And we thank you. We thank you for your plans that find their fulfilment in Jesus. We thank you for our lives made for and now finding their fulfilment in Jesus as we have met him. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, may we continue to long for better, but long for what you have made and remade in your Son, the Lord Jesus. For you know us intimately and have loved us incredibly. And so ultimately, we long to see you and your kingdom come in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.